a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. everyone and welcome to another episode of Force Ghost Coast to Coast Multiversity Comics Star Wars Podcast. I am, as always, your host, Alice W. Castle, and I am back with another episode bringing you all of our, basically, news and content about Star Wars for the past month. This month we're going to be talking about a little bit about some news that broke this week, a little bit about some novels that we've been reading, a little bit about the uh, Clone Wars TV show that Brian's been catching up on, and as I just spoiled... To join me in talking about that is, as usual by this point, uh, Brian Salvatore. How are you doing, man? I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing very well. Um, it's been a light month in terms of Star Wars content, but I feel like we kind of needed that after the uh, double barrel of uh, Last Jedi and Solo. Yeah, the sort of biggest news aside from what we're going to talk about is the rumor that um, Lucasfilm was shutting down all of its non- uh, non-saga spin-off films for a while, but that mm-hmm. has seemingly been shut down, and uh, I never quite believed it to begin with. Uh, but I think one of the things that caught me about this, uh, sorry, copy you there, no, but I think one of the things that caught me off about this is there was a lot of places reporting certain films that were were being quote unquote worked on without any word from Lucasfilm like the Obi-Wan film, like uh, James Mangold's Boba Fett film. And I never believed for a second any of those were past, like, a couple of meetings with people. I never once believed they were actually in production. And I think what I believe might have happened is that they've looked at the uh, the response to the double barrel kind of blow of The Last Jedi and Solo and kind of went, let's cool our jets on our plans post-Episode nine until episode nine. Yeah. I I also think that, you know, solo, as we discussed last time, is such a tricky thing to, to contextualize in the context of, of greater star Wars, because it was such a troubled production that you can't really Mm -hmm. fault anybody for, uh, for not wanting to get into another production like that, you know? So if, I don't think it's because it was a uh, sort of a spin-off film, the Star Wars story film, that it was troubled. But it is interesting that both the Star Wars story films went through quite a bit of drama compared to what yeah. we're used to for Star Wars films. So I think, if anything, maybe they're just going to sort of uh, reassess how those films get made. Mm. But I do think that something like an Obi-Wan film there's a certain amount of there's a cer- only a certain number of years that film can be made in right you have yeah to do, well, that, that well, has maybe the biggest life. ticking clock on it exactly so i think that that one will certainly happen i just don't know the manner in which it will happen or the timeline in which it will happen i think you probably have about five to eight years to make that movie before mcgregor's a little bit too old mm-hmm what do you think? Uh, yeah. Uh, I think I remember noting uh, just before Force Awakens came out, when they started talking about uh, anthology films, when Rogue One was kind of announced but hadn't really started to take shape, that uh, like Ewan McGregor was exactly 19 years younger than Alec Guinness was when he filmed A New Hope. Mm-hmm. And like that, that is... Not the exact window, but like I feel like that is the the ticking clock over the head of Lucasfilms. If they ever want to make this film, and I feel like they have to know that people want them to make this film. Oh yeah, like Ewan McGregor was unequivocally the best part of the prequel trilogy. Like, barring anything else in that film, just that performance kind of makes those films worth it. Yes, and I feel like they have to know that there is a demand to see him get the spotlight in his own film and 
I, I certainly hope that the if they were talking about it and if they have kind of started cooling their jets or whatever is happening, that is in order to get it right as opposed to shelving it. Yes. Yes, I agree. I think that the brilliance of an Obi-Wan movie starring McGregor is that it's pretty much the only thing that Lucasfilm could do in in, in 20... 20, 20, 21, whatever the year will be, that will yeah. please both the fans of the prequels and those that hate the prequels. You know, it's yeah. while using prequel, while using a prequel actor, it's uh, it's sort of the perfect, the perfect way to connect those two fan bases. Um, yeah, and I I feel like they've already got the kind of uh not quite the template for how that film should go, but like something that kind of shows how well it could go. And uh, I think it was John Jackson Miller's Kenobi novel. Yes. Which is kind of the same tone that Obi-Wan's appearance had in the original Star Wars is what happens when you have this Ronin samurai from this, this ancient time stuck in a spaghetti Western Yeah. that, you know, also has aliens and whatnot in it. But I feel like that's kind of the core of that mentality of the the kind of juxtaposition between this very noble, almost knight-like character and this very uh, lawless wasteland of a setting. And it could be so good if they get the right people behind it. And I think that is what I hope is going on, is them trying to get the right people. I think they'll be able to do it. I think this is a movie that everybody both wants to succeed and knows can succeed. This isn't much of a risk, as long as they play their cards right. Yeah. Um, but we do have some actual Star Wars news. And uh, Yeah, Star Wars news that I, I feel like has been a long time coming. Yeah, why don't you, why don't you tell us about the, the sort of bigger of the two casting notices for Episode Nine? Yeah, so they're, they're both uh, casting notices for the as-yet-untitled Star Wars Episode Nine. One dropped... I think literally yesterday, um, the other earlier in the week, kind of late last week, the the big one that I, I'm excited about uh, comes from the Hollywood Reporter that Billy D. Williams is reprising his role as Lando Calrissian in Episode Nine. I think this is like should have happened in Episode Seven. I, I get why it didn't. I get why it didn't happen in Episode Eight. I think this is such a long time coming that uh, I. I yeah, it needed to happen. Yeah, I, I think this is going to be great. I think that the sort of conventional wisdom behind this is that he will appear at Leia's funeral. Or at yeah. least that's, that's what people are sort of speculating about. Um, but do you think that there's a chance he has a, a larger role than a, than a glorified cameo? Or do you think that this works best with him in a scene or two? Um... I think somewhere, somewhere kind of closer to glorified cameo. Not, I don't want this to be one scene and then he's gone. I don't want him to be just popping up to to fill in a gap. I, I want it to actually follow up on where the character has been, and especially now that we know where the character came from from Solo. I want them to kind of uh, help bookend that a little bit, especially now that we know that. Hand dies in Force Awakens, um, and I think it'll be because one of the things that I, I think people are kind of struggling with in this sequel trilogy is the idea of the kind of the the bittersweet nature of seeing these characters kind of uh, lost in time, almost um, these characters who were so tightly knit, you know, a couple decades ago, are these still uh, important figures in the mythos? of the world but they they've kind of lost touch with one another and i get why people are sad that they didn't get to see you know luke skywalker and han solo hip to hip fighting the first order because there's there's a bitter sweetness to that and that's that's something that you want and are actively denied by the passage of time and i think they they can put kind of a button on that with this and having the kind of lamentation of Lando never being able to meet up with Han before his death. Some something to that effect. I, I hope we get. Um, I don't think it's necessarily going to be a, a huge role, but that's that's what I'm hoping for in this, at least. 
Now, conventional, again, just going back to conventional wisdom, going by what you think is going to happen, it seems like, it doesn't seem like Lando is going to be a major character in the film. Um, I mean, yeah. they, could prove, they could prove us wrong, but that, that seems to be the, the general idea. Having just read uh, Last Shot, the, the Han and Lando novel, where and that that novel takes place in sort of two different timelines. It takes place mm-hmm. uh, flashing back to right to basically in between Solo and A New Hope, and okay. and like seven or eight years after Return of the Jedi, um, and so you see Lando as both you know this sort of young youngish uh, droid manufacturer slash uh, you know. General, you know, Coxman, and uh, just you know, Lando. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you see him yeah, as yeah. sort of a younger Lando, and then you also see him as Uncle Lando to Ben. And okay. I think that there could be a really interesting movie outside of Episode Nine. You know, people are clamoring for a Lando movie. I would love to see a Lando movie in the two timelines. Have Glover and Billy D play Lando in a movie. Yeah, I think that that could be interesting. Fun. You know, um, because that's really the one character you can sort of do that with at this point. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we'll see. I, I'm excited about that. I I am not opposed to the second casting notice, but I have I do have something I want to talk to you about with it. So um, I guess I'll just say it. Uh, uh, Carrie yeah. Russell was announced as uh, being a character in Episode 9. Uh, Carrie Russell, of course... Has a long history with J.J. Abrams. Um, oh yeah, and uh, you know she's a, a fine actress. Most recently on The Americans, which I, d- I did not watch, but I've heard excellent things about. Yeah, um, I've heard that one's pretty good. But the thing I want to talk to you about, Alice, is there's this rumor floating out there that she's being cast as Ray's mother. Yeah, I've heard this one as well. How do you feel about that rumor? I'm actually fine with it, depending on the the context, because I remember reading once about um, a scene, the scene in Return of the Jedi where Luke goes back to to Yoda's home, um, and one of the kind of key kind of reason that scene's in the film is not just to tie up uh, Yoda's storyline, but there's the the moment where Luke has to ask him, uh, "Was Vader telling the truth? Is Vader my father?" And Yoda having to admit that, and the the reason I was reading about it was because it was uh it was probably on Wikipedia or something, but it was talking about a child psychologist uh talking about how that was included because if you asked any kid who saw Empire Strikes Back, they would be adamant that Vader was lying to Luke to manipulate him, because to them the bad guy always lies, like they they couldn't get the the kind of shock aspect of it. And they had to include a scene where, you know, a, a good guy, in quotes, uh, confirms it in order for them to believe that, yeah, that was the truth. That's really and interesting. And I think this could be something similar as to confirming what Ben says is the truth. Because there's every chance that you could read that scene as him trying to manipulate Ray because it's kind of his word against nothing in the context of the film, like right. Ray doesn't do anything to dispute it, but there's no real evidence to see that it's it's true. And I think that could be something that they're they're using this scene to see as to kind of finally stamp out any rumor that Ray is actually connected to, you know, throw a dart at the wall covered in Star Wars names. Right. I, I think that could be why they're doing this. If it's not, I will be very surprised. And if it is some kind of a twist on top of a twist uh, I will be very surprised but I, I, I wouldn't be able to guess uh, what that could be I, I really wonder how much power Abrams has in the Star Wars sort of um, in, the, in the Lucasfilm hierarchy where do you think he has the ability to say to Kathleen Kennedy listen I had planned all along that Ray's parents were these people Despite what Ryan Johnson did, can I still do that? Do you think he has that kind of power? I think yes. Um, like my my gut instinct, based on 
having seen uh, that documentary, The Director and the Jedi, with uh, Ryan Johnson's yeah. kind of journey stuff, my gut kind of seeing that kind of behind the scenes look is that he would have that power unless he was like directly retconning it in a way. Okay. Like, I think if he's coming in to, to add on top of that, I think he certainly has that power. Obviously, this is a pure guess, but I, I don't think that they would put that in a film only for the next filmmaker to come in and be like, actually, no, can I say something that directly contradicts this to because I like this idea better? Right. I, I think that kind of goes against uh, whatever, like their kind of, uh, uh, I guess you could say, ideology as yeah. part of the, the story group. But I think this he would certainly have that power to say, actually, I like what Ryan did here, but I want to add on to it in some way. I, I think he he would certainly have that power. At least I'd, I'd hope so. It's really interesting how Star Wars for years was, you know, obviously many people contributed to the vision, but ultimately there was one person at the top who made that decision. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like Kathleen Kennedy is that person for Lucasfilm. It seems like she is the closest thing they have to that, but she yeah. is not the um, the sort of... Uh, final say that Lucas was. Yeah, and I think I, I, I'm I'm kind of glad for that because I think one of the things that we found with the prequel trilogy certainly is that like like I think it was maybe something uh unique to Lucas himself that he, he works better uh when he can bounce ideas off of people. Um I, I think he, he works better when he, he has collaborators and one of the things that kind of marked the prequel trilogy is the fact that he was like he was director in all of them he was solo writer in all of them and we saw how they came out but i i think having certainly the story group as these kind of arbiters of the the various bits of media and then working with the creators to to let their voices all kind of work in a certain kind of harmony my name's matt and i'm wes and together we host That's The Issue, the comic book podcast that gets to know you through the issues that you love. Every month we take a random, tangent-filled look through comic books and pop culture. And along the way we cover everything from Doink the Clown to Mr. Blobby. Don't ask about the Mr. Blobby, we don't ask about the Mr. Blobby. <laughs> we do also talk about comic books as well. Like the weirdest comic books in your collection or your favourite comic book movies. So join us on the third Friday of every month on multiversitycomics.com or wherever podcasts are found. Blobby, blobby, blobby! <laughs> I knew you'd do that well. That's why I put it at the end. Okay, so we're back and transitioning from our talk about news stuff because that was pretty much it. A couple of casting out uh, news. I'm excited for Ability Williams in episode nine, but uh, we'll have to see, wait and see how uh, that shapes up. What we're going to dive into now is one of our two kind of main topics for this episode, which is the novels we've been reading over the past kind of uh, couple months, or at least month and a half for myself. Uh, I kind of dropped off on reading Star Wars novels for a little bit there, but finally managed to get myself through the Phasma novel by Delilah S. Dawson and start the Guardians of the Wills by Greg Rucka. So we'll be talking about that. And uh, Brian, what have you read or have been reading? Uh, well, let's see. <laughs> Since we last spoke, I believe I finished um, The Last Jedi uh, novelization. I okay. don't know if we've talked about Leia, Princess of Alderaan, which I read. I don't believe we have. And uh, the aforementioned Last Shot by uh, Daniel Jose Older. Nice. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about Phasma, since we both read Phasma. Um, yeah. What did um, you... I, I, I did not love this novel. I don't know how you felt about it. Yeah, I I, I was the same. Um, my uh, If I was to sum it up in a word, I would probably have to say lackluster. Um, I I don't necessarily know what I was expecting. I knew going into it that you weren't the biggest fan of it because I think we kind of mentioned that when you were in like the kind of first stages of reading it. Um, the way you explained the uh, the the kind of narrative, uh, I guess you could say, uh, framing of the novel. Um, so I, I kind of knew that going into it. I wasn't sure exactly what the story was, and then coming out the end of it. I kind of feel like I haven't learned anything about Phasma that I can already tell from her appearances in the film. Right. 
And like to me, that is kind of the core of like. So what was the novel about? Right. Yeah, you know. I don't know. How did you feel? Well, okay. There's a couple of things. First of all, uh, you mentioned that I did not like the structure of the novel, and I yeah. think that that was a big hindrance to me enjoying it early on because there's this bouncing back and forth between the present, which seems to be taking place, you know, not long before the Force Awakens, and the past, which yeah. you know is twenty or so years. It starts at least you know twenty or so years before before those events. And uh, yeah. I, f- I found the transitions jarring, especially because once the sort of book gets going, there's almost no reason for the flashback, sorry, for the jumps to the present. Yeah. Like, it's just... I, I had the same thing. It's just basically the the, cap- the Captain Cardinal just, like, asking the rebel spy, like, wait a minute, you said she did this. Are you sure about that? Just, just really unnecessary jumps back into the present uh basically it was just there to remind us that yes this is that someone is telling the story this is not an omniscient narrator there is a narrator here telling the story and this is why that's important i will say that to to kind of uh sorry to kind of set the scene for uh people we we will be kind of talking spoilers about this but to kind of set the scene for the novel it opens with a resistance by by the name of vai maradi i believe Mm mm-hmm um, being captured up on aboard the the first order star destroyer, the Absolution, um, tortured for information by uh, Captain Cardinal, who's the only other first order stormtrooper captain, so far as I am aware, apart from uh, Phasma, because he wants dirt on Phasma because he's jealous of her. And for the first, I want to say about ten or so chapters, um, once uh, Vi starts kind of telling the story of Phasma. Every other chapter would cut back to her and Cardinal um, for no reason other than to be like, no, no, tell, tell me more. Or, or like, as you said, Brian, like the, uh, wait a minute, I, I thought this would happen. You, you're telling me that actually she's ruthless and cold-blooded. <laughs> and it, after a while, it kind of stops happening. And the only kind of uh, indication that this is still being the story told by that is there's little instances, like maybe once every other chapter, where the prose kind of uh, breaks the fourth wall a little bit, and you you get kind of uh, interjections from Vi herself. But otherwise, it might as well just be the story of Phasma on Parnassus. Right, For right. the majority of the novel. Yeah, and I will say that once Cardinals sort of... Um... Once you get more of an idea of who Cardinal is as a character mm-hmm. towards the end of the novel, then I didn't mind so much those interjections because you got the idea that he was a character that was more complex than just being jealous. Because in the beginning, it does seem like he's just butthurt over Phasma yeah. being the sort of uh, golden stormtrooper at this point, you know? the one that everyone loves, and, you know, he his work's just as important, etc., etc. Yeah. So once there was more to him than that, I didn't mind those so much. But I felt the first 50 or 60 pages of this were incredibly tough to get through because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, yeah, so kind of after a while, like, pretty much this novel ends about three times. <laughs> yes. Like, yes. for no apparent reason um because you get like vi's like story within a story is like a full three-act story about how brendel hux's uh shuttle uh one of palpatine's prized naboo chromium shuttles because we have to explain how phasma got her armor um crashes on Parnassus and ends up running into phasma's tribe because her world has been devastated by what they come to learn is some massive devastation uh, caused by a corporate explosion. And so they're basically living, like, in, in, like, bare minimum, like, tribal settings. Um, Little to no technology. They're they're fighting with sticks and clubs, and they have to get back to his ship. It's literally just... It's it's Mad Max in Star Wars, basically, is how it kept feeling to me in terms of just... It is point A from point B, and every so often they run into um, 
something else that stops them on their journey that they have to get around. And, yeah, but once so... that comes to an end, Cardinal somehow becomes the main character. Sorry, what were we going to say there? No, I, I was going to say that there's, you know, there's this, um, th- there's a sequence where there are these beetles that essentially drain mm-hmm. the blood out of people. Yeah, and that was kind of a cool set piece, like a sort of a fun set piece in the middle of the novel. And there was some stuff about the like. There's a um, there's a character whose name I'm escaping because I read this book like you know, I'd say almost six months ago now. Uh, yeah, there's, there's sort of uh, Phasma's second in command, who's the 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 character she, she used. She essentially she makes this like paste out of dead bodies that are yeah. Then used. Um... Siv, her name Siv, was yes, S-I-F. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Siv sort of makes these these pastes out of dead bodies. That are, it's just the whole idea of like you know once you die that you are returned to usefulness within your tribe, and you know yeah. all, all of that stuff is good and fine if all of that stuff happened within a more interesting narrative, but particularly with a more interesting main character. Phasma, you just find that she's this ruthless sort of uh, warrior, but there's no, there's almost purposely no motivation for her actions. Yeah, because um, one of the things that I, I kind of expected going into the novel is that there would be some kind of uh, narrative removal from between the reader and Phasma herself, because she just kind of seems like that character where it's the story is told about her and you see her move through other people's lives like if i was telling this novel i would employ the exact same kind of thing where the main character isn't phasma but we see her through this character's eyes right i think one of the problems is as the there's like three layers of removal from the reader and phasma right if siv was telling the story it'd be very different yeah if it was only about that story and it was just siv kind of seeing this woman that she knew as a fierce warrior, they abandon all attachments to that in order to to seek a, a higher power in the first order, um, and then eventually be abandoned uh, by that in order for Phasma to seek more power. That would have been compelling if it had just been about Vi being tortured and Cardinal using that to uh, to try and like besmirch Phasma to show that she. She has no loyalty to the First Order uh, ideology in the way that he does, but only to to the notion of power. That could have been interesting if it had actually kind of explored, I I think, like the why behind Phasma's uh, kind of uh, predisposition to to, uh, uh, detachment in a way, because she's loyal to nothing except whoever's going to make her more powerful. Like that—that's kind of the the way the f- novel sums her up. Is that she's only as loyal until someone bigger comes along, then she will sell out whoever she's currently loyal to in order to to gain a secure place with the the stronger bullies. Right. She's and she's think, purely opportunistic. Yeah, and that to me is actually a very interesting aspect of the character that you can't you don't actually get in the films where you kind of see that. Yeah, sure. She's she's the shiny stormtrooper. She's the captain. She is, in the film, she only really exists as a foil for Finn. But there's something there where she is drilling this ideology into these uh, trainee stormtroopers that she only believes in so far as it can help her. That kind of nugget is interesting, and it takes about thirty chapters to get to that nugget. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's kind of my main problem with the novel. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's... Uh, it is certainly not one of the better new canon novels. Yeah. And if this had been, I think, a four-issue miniseries from Marvel, it would have been a lot better, because I think they could have condensed it a lot more. But a full-scale novel, I think, is it was straining at the steams to, to kind of fill itself with story. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Um I also think that this is the one character in the films that did not need a novel whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And 
if you're going to give a novel to this character, there has to be a real reason to do so. Yeah. And I just didn't see that reason. Like I said, I, I get why people... Because there were people who were talking uh, coming out of Force Awakens and then kind of coming out of Last Jedi, even though it was like one of the minor, minor issues people had with The Last Jedi, is that like Phasma had no character arc. Phasma wasn't as interesting as the kind of marketing portrayed her to be. Um, and I think that comes from the idea that we expect these cool character designs to have something mm-hmm. cool behind them because we're used to 30 years of BS Boba Fett stories where he's the ultimate god warrior in the entire universe, even though he was an idiot who got hit in his backpack and fell down a hole right. in his second movie appearance. Um, she did exactly what she needed to do in the films, which is be the ideological foil for Finn. He is the the um, not betrayer, deserter, um, and she is the loyalist kind of a captain that trained him. That's all that she needed to do. And I think the novel was a place where you could expand on that. And I think they did eventually, but in order to fill a full novel, it, it felt like a lot of, not filler, but kind of fluff that wasn't quite as interesting as it could have been. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so talk to me about the novelization of The Last Jedi, because I spied on your Goodreads account a two-star review of this novel, <laughs> and I'm very, very interested as to why. Okay, so l- l- let me say a couple of things about it. So, first of all, uh, Matt Garcia and I read this for our Star Wars book club on Multiversity, and okay. um, a big chunk of our conversation revolved around the idea of the place for a novelization in 2018. I was uh-huh. talking about when I was a kid, so you know, I am considerably older than you, Alice, but when I was a kid, I went to go yeah. see Superman for The Quest for Peace with my dad in the movies. <laughs> and, yep. I, and I was a kid, and I didn't know any better, and I really liked Superman for The Quest for Peace. And so my parents bought yeah, I'm me... I'm an adult, and I don't know any better, and I quite like Quest for Peace. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I should probably give it another shot, but the last time I watched it, I was not particularly pleased with it. But anyway, so I, my, my parents bought me the novelization of this book because I was a, uh, I was a young reader and, you know, it was, it was a way for me to enjoy the film because back then it would take about a year for a film to wind up on VHS. And after that, if you wanted to buy the film at that year mark, it would cost about $100. Um, mm-hmm. You could rent it, but you couldn't, you know, buy it yourself from for for less than a hundred dollars or so. By the time it came on cable or was a, a more affordable price, you're talking three or four years later sometimes. And so, sure. the novelization was a really good way for somebody who liked the book or like the film rather to experience the book after having seen the movie. Mm-hmm. Even when like the novelization of the Phantom Menace came out. The, the 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 time between initial viewing and home viewing was was a further gap than what we have now. Yeah. So the two characters that the last Jedi novelization really helped for me were Rose and Luke, and it was two particular moments for those two characters. The first moment for Rose is that you know we see Rose throughout the film somewhat annoyed by Finn, and, mm-hmm. and rightly so. But the novel really doubles down on the idea that the reason she was so annoyed at Finn, or one of the reasons, was because of his, like in her words, puppy dog crush on Ray, where okay. she thought he should be more dedicated to the cause, mm-hmm. and he's just dedicated to Ray. And so while that's kind of implied in the film, I thought that yeah. was I thought that, that was a nice little bit of character work. Because mm-hmm. you, you, can, you can kind of see that in his arc through the film where... In the beginning, like literally the first thing you see of him is Poe's line of uh, you must have a million questions and he only has one, like where's Ray? Right. Compared to where he is at the end where he's he's rebel scum. So right. yeah, I, I can see how expanding on that, uh, especially Rose view on that, because I think uh, one of the things that even the film makes explicit is like the worst thing that uh, Finn did in front of her was 
potentially deserting, even if it's to to go help Ray, is still running away in the middle of like what's essentially a battle. Right. Yeah. So and and, and Rose in general gets some more nice moments. You find out more about her sister. You find out more mm-hmm. about their kind of overall relationship. That character is benefited. Luke has one moment that I think is really interesting and I think would have changed a lot of people, possibly even including Mark Hamill's opinion about Luke in the movie. Mm-hmm. So we see the scene where Luke reconnects to the Force and that's what wakes up Leia. And then yeah. the next time we see him, he's walking into Ray's cottage and she's touching hands with Kylo Ren and he freaks out. In between yeah. there in the novel he comes to realize sort of his role in the universe and his role within the resistance and he's going to tell Rey he will leave with her. And then he sees her holding hands with Ben and freaks out, changes his mind. That's interesting because it's a small detail and I think it's 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 almost implied or it it feels like there was because he's clearly going from that scene to entering Ray's hut anyway in the film. If I remember correctly, it's it's been a couple of months since I've seen it. Um, So, yeah, I think kind of a small, or or even, yeah. Again, it's it's taking an implication and making it more concrete. Yeah, and I think that's what kind of uh, novelizations kind of need to do in certain senses. Yes, but I will say this. I will say that the the rest of the novelization, there's a number of scenes that read incredibly dry. Like, I think we can all sure. agree that the throne room sequence in the film is one of the most visually stunning sequences in any Star Wars film. Yeah, it reads, maybe even any blockbuster film. Yes, it reads so dry and dull, Ugh. you know, because how do you really describe that stuff? Yeah. You know, and uh, so a lot of the novel, like I found a lot of it a slog to get through because it wasn't exactly, because it wasn't just filling in the gaps. I would have liked the novelization way more if it didn't tell the story of the film and just showed you the little extra bits, you know. Sure, because I think that's kind of the thing that it was being uh, marketed on is the, because I think it says in the cover, it's like the expanded edition. Yes. Or whatever it's because there's already so much content in the film that the idea of uh, having a little bit extra room to kind of breathe and and uh, explore a little bit more was something that both people who maybe didn't like the film and wanted more or people who liked the film and could have done with a little extra breathing room were interested in. But yeah, I can see why where as soon as it gets back to the stuff you've seen, I can get could get dry yeah there were only two sequences that are not in the film at all to my to my recollection maybe i'm forgetting one but one of them is the dream sequence that opens the film and opens the book rather where luke is quote dreaming of his wife and it's Mm -hmm. essentially a long like he's having a dream about when he was on tatooine if he didn't join up with obi-wan yeah that that i think was uh the thing that uh, being told about kind of sold me on the novelization, at least for that scene. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, that was, um, that scene was okay. It was fine, but it wasn't, it, they never come back to it. it. To me, it seemed a little bit like okay. a, uh, just something to get people to pick the book up. Maybe it was the sure. last thing written. I don't know. Um, it wasn't all that essential. The other is that there is a little bit of a Han funeral sequence. Okay. Where Leia, Leia gives a little bit of a eulogy for Han, um, and uh, that takes place. Uh, I'm blanking on the name of the planet. The planet that is being evacuated in the first sequence in the film. Uh Dakar. Dakar, yeah, yeah. So that's that's the only other, to my knowledge, new sequence in the film, in the book. Right. Interesting. Um, so it's it's fine. It's just it it was very dry. In parts, 
Yeah, I, I've had that with uh, the kind of prior two novelizations that I've read. Like, mm. I've started The Force Awakens and the Rogue One novelization separately and got not even towards the end of, like, the first act of what would be the film mm-hmm. and been like, why am I reading something I've already seen and could easily watch again right. to get a couple of extra scenes that, like... And especially in those ones, they're kind of expanded versions on scenes that make it work better in prose and kind of a little bit of delete scenes in. It's never anything that essentially changes the narrative being told. Right. I'm like, I could be reading almost anything else and it would be a better use of my time. Now, the, the one scene that is in the novelization that I think is in the deleted scenes, but I heard somebody say it wasn't, and so now I can't tell if I read it and pictured it as a deleted scene... Okay. Or, or if it's actually the scene, because I haven't got any checked, is the third lesson that Ray's teaching Luke that Luke is teaching Ray. Oh yeah, that that's the lead scene. That is okay. I'm not crazy. Okay. I have no idea what that person's talking about. And it's it's the person, it's the host of the Story and Star Wars podcast, who said that that's not a deleted scene. And Weird. I'm pretty sure I saw like, that because I've seen that scene and I haven't read the novel. Right. Exactly. So, so okay. All right. Not. I'm not crazy then. All right. That's good. Because um, it's the one where the he's the, like, the, the, the oh, there's a. There's a band of raiders coming in because there's like a fire in the village and she runs off and yeah. it's just not a party. Yeah. And to me, that scene is really important for Luke also because yeah. in that scene, Luke pays Ray a compliment. He says, the resistance needs people like you who will run in no matter what and do the right thing. The Jedi yeah. wouldn't do that. We need you, not the Jedi. Yeah. And, and so- I, I, like, it, it was important. the scene where I, I know where they why they deleted it, mm-hmm. but I wish they hadn't. Exactly. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yes. So so that's my my story with the novelization. Um how far are you in Greg Rucka's Guardians of the Wills book? Uh I've uh, I am at the start of chapter three. So okay. not very. No, it's a pretty short book too. Yeah. Uh that book is interesting because well anyway i want to hear what you have to say about it first i don't want to spoil anything so tell me what you think about it so far uh well first impressions are interesting i i think the the way it almost exists kind of as a tone tone poem so far mm-hmm. um has been kind of uh very interesting because it's not so far two chapters and it's been a lot of just like this is what life is like in Jeddah. This is what life is like for these two now that their entire life has been upended by the Empire. And it's kind of the... It's a little bit like what we see in Rogue One and especially in Solo where it it feels like those kind of vignettes of cutting away to other people's lives under Imperial rule of like this is just how garbage it is to live under this kind of fascist regime. And the kind of following the two people where... One of them's very idealistic about kind of doing something about it, and one of them's doing it because this is what's life, the one being killed in the process of doing it, and that is the dynamic I loved between Chirrut and Baze and Rogue One, so I'm interested to see where this goes, uh, especially after the uh, like a hijacking scene Yes. in uh, Chapter 2, because um, so far it feels like each chapter's kind of a uh, just like a snippet of their lives. Like, even if this didn't kind of coalesce into like an overarching story, if it was just like little bits of their lives, I'd be, uh, I'd be cool with that. Yeah. It, it does coalesce into a, a bigger story. Um, but I agree with you. Yeah. I, I don't want to say too much because there's, there's a part of the book that I didn't, that I think makes that kind of changes the way rogue one it changes an aspect of Rogue One. I want to talk to you about it after you finish reading it. Okay. So I'm not going to say too much more about that. That's enough. We we can because uh, I'll finish this like probably by the end of the week, so uh, we can pick up with that yeah, uh, next, next episode. Yeah, for sure. So should we talk about the Clone Wars now? Yeah. Uh, do you have anything else to kind of say about Last Shot? Or I think we've kind of. We we've mentioned that a, a bit kind of the last couple of episodes. Yeah, it's good. It's definitely worth your yeah. time. It's one of the best Star Wars novels I've read so far. Sure. Um, and I also highly recommend if anyone hasn't read Leia, Princess of Alderaan, mm-hmm. definitely read that. Cool. Because I think uh, 
as I said, kind of the last couple of times, I've kind of fallen off reading Star Wars novels uh, just before Christmas because mm-hmm. um, I kind of blasted through everything from Tarkin up to I want to say the end of the aftermath trilogy okay. in like two years and barely read any other novels. <laughs> yeah. So I would kind of like maybe I'm a little Star Wars out. So I think now that I've got will have two under my belt, I'm uh, gonna get last shot. I want to see Infernal Squad because I uh, I want to see what that's about. I, I liked Twilight Company a lot, so I want to see what the other Battlefront novels like, and uh, Leia Princess of Aldron. So hopefully I can get Guard of the Wills, Princess of Aldron, and Infernal Squadron done by if not next episode, kind of uh, the episode afterwards. Sure, that works. That's kind of uh, my personal goal. Cool. So yeah, you uh, you finished season five of Clone Wars. Yes, all I have left now are the lost missions. Yeah, so basically, and in, in my eyes, you have finished Clone Wars. Um, that the the final episode you watched was the final episode that um aired on Car- Cartoon Network before it was cancelled. Right. That is, for all intents and purposes, the end of the show. The the lost missions are whatever episodes they had in the can. By the time the cancellation came through. Right. Which, um, I, I get the impression just sort of looking at the different descriptions, mm-hmm. is that the lost episodes were all the, or the lost missions were all the episodes that didn't tie into whatever the season six plot was going to be. Yeah. Because each, each season has this sort of overarching plot, and then it has all these interstitial little bits that don't really tie into that. Yeah. So that was the impression. There's two arcs, the the beginning arc and the kind of couple of episodes that um, cap off the the Lost Missions are really good um, and do a lot to help, kind of, would have done a lot to help flesh out the, uh, the narrative of uh, the series as a whole. One, very much about the clones and is uh, kind of a very interesting twist on something that you think you already know. And the other being very kind of force uh, um, influenced, kind of uh, taking a very spiritual look at the force, uh, kind of in the same way as the the Mortis arc. Okay. The episodes between that are are like the, whatever filler they they kind of had in the can at the start of the production of the season. Right. Like you can tell they kind of like put those together, and then we're going to put the money into the other ones. Right. Um. If I remember correctly, one is a, another set of uh, Padme's not quite boyfriend that uh, Anakin yeah. is jealous of. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. One is one is about him. The other is a Mace Windu Jar Jar Binks team up arc. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so I I, I watched. I've been watching these Clone Wars episodes slightly out of order. I think I mentioned this to you last time that my daughter yeah. only wants to watch Ahsoka episodes. And, and I, I'm so happy for her. So we, we actually watched the last arc before the Satine-Obi-Wan Maul arc that oh, precedes that. Mm-hmm. So um, so I, like, I had to go back. So I, I watched the Ahsoka stuff with her. And then just today I went back and I finished the the mall stuff. Sure. Um, so I, it's slightly different. But I, I want to talk about the mall stuff first just because I have less to say about that. Um, yeah, yeah. But so the mall stuff I find really interesting. I find it interesting that he essentially tries to set up the Crimson Dawn here. Yeah. And fails. And then we see that in Solo that he eventually gets there. So that's yeah. that's really interesting, and I know he shows up again in Rebels. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm really interested to see how all this connects. Um, From what I gathered about kind of reading into what the the rest of Clone Wars would have been, uh-huh. um, and this is partially why you should read a, uh, I think Son of Dathomir is the yes. comic yes. that it's four issues and basically like was going to be a four issue arc in either season six or season seven, mm-hmm. um, and the Ahsoka novel, which right. kind of ties up what would have been like the grand finale of the show um, is that he would have ended up being uh, kind of captured by Palpatine and then breaking out again and then going back to Mandalore. Um, and that was the, 
been kind of explaining why, like, so far as I was aware, the um, quote-unquote siege of Mandalore would have been, like, season eight or nine's big finale, like, the show's entire finale. Okay. To explain why Ahsoka wasn't in uh, Revenge of the Sith. Like, it would have taken place concurrently. Right. Um, Um, Yeah. Unfortunately, as it stands, basically, uh, you get one of my favorite lightsaber fights of all time, where Palpatine comes in and kicks both of their asses without barely drawing a breath, and then, like, nothing. Uh, they, <laughs> they really had to take, kind of tie up the loose ends there. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate, but uh, I, those episodes, to me, are fantastic. Yeah. And... That, that, that was the, the scope and scale of the show at its peak. And I feel like the, even though Obi-Wan is only in the third of those three episodes, mm-hmm. the stuff with him and Satine, it is Satine, right? It's sounding wrong when I'm yeah, saying yeah. that. I don't know why. No. Okay. Uh, the stuff with him and Satine, I think, really, really works. Yeah. And I, I think it shows that Obi-Wan is both a much better Jedi than Anakin. Yeah. And But also, it breaks your heart because of what could have been for him. Yeah. You know, it, it's good. It's good stuff. Um, I think it's, it's something it touches on um, that I, I think George was trying to make text, or at least subtext in the prequel trilogy, that the the idea of the Jedi never being quite as pure as the legends told about them, and it's something that the Last Jedi certainly makes text. Right. Um. The especially stuff in Attack of the Clones, like the the few good aspects of that film are the moments where you see Anakin's actual humanity brush up against the dogma of the Jedi. Right. And I think th- those are the moments in the Clone Wars, especially with uh knowing that. Obi-Wan had a chance to have an outside life and kind of uh, pushed away in order to follow this very uh, ascetic life. Um, it's a tragedy. And it's the the kind of purest aspect of a, of a war film that Star Wars really gets to. Yeah. I love those episodes. Yeah. Now, the Ahsoka episodes are really interesting to me for a few reasons. Yeah. Um, First of all, Ahsoka's just a great character. Yeah. She has but come... Before we get anything, these are the episodes that I was like, you cannot let anyone tell you anything about the end of Clone Wars. Because I wanted you to go into these episodes clean. And I kind of these knew... These were every... the episodes. I kind of knew everything that happened. Yeah. That, that's that's what frustrated me. Uh, because I read the Tarkin novel. Yep. And they mentioned the, the oh, trial. Oh, God, I forgot there. they mentioned that. And, um, and I also... I guess this somewhere along the way I knew that Ahsoka leaves the the order. Sure. Um, but I didn't know sort of how that happened at all. So I, I, I really enjoyed the episodes. I enjoyed Anakin's role in the episodes. Mm-hmm. And I think my one criticism of them is that as much as Ahsoka has grown in the last couple of seasons of the show, I feel like they could have done a little bit more to prepare you for her wanting to leave the order. And part of that sure. I think is in the the construction of the season because yeah. if they had had um the Sagarera arc right before this one, mm-hmm. it would have set that. But in between the Guerrera arc and this, you see her with the younglings. And she's in like full on Jedi mode. Mm-hmm. For the younglings ones, so I think if you just flip flop those two, it would have done a lot more. Yeah, that's sort true. Of prepare you for this. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a small criticism. I thought it was really, really well done, and I can imagine the heartbreak of fans watching this in real time to then watch the season six episodes and not have any Ahsoka whatsoever. Yeah, and not know that she comes back in Rebels. If I if I remember correctly, yeah, no, the season the what was left of season six was out by the time Rebels came out because Rebels had an entire series out because she doesn't come into it until basically season two, right? Um, so yeah, this this was <laughs> like because I I didn't watch this um as release, but I I when I got to these episodes, I had no idea it was coming, um. And it, it broke me. I, I was devastated. 
but one of the things that they've talked about because um, they've had like three or four different panels in the last couple of celebrations talking about kind of unmade and undone uh, Clone War stories and episodes that kind of never came to fruition. Mm-hmm. And they showed footage of episodes with Ahsoka that would have been in season six. She was still going to be a character, um, just not with the Jedi. She was basically going to take almost like an Asajj Ventress role. Right. Um, after she left Dooku, where she's basically not quite a bounty hunter, but kind of a private detective kind of thing. She was going to have her own motorbike, like speeder bike thing. Nice. Like basically she's running around like this like chopper looking speeder bike with a leather jacket. It would have been amazing. That sounds so you. It's incredible. Right. <laughs> it was been perfect. It's like but, somebody uh, reached into your dream journal and pulled that out. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, Ahsoka is a really special character for me and I, I understand why this arc had to happen. But it's also the most Dave Filoni thing to ever happen, where he's like, hey, you know how everything's all sunshine and daisies? I'm just going to rip your heart out. <laughs> yeah. Um, but my goal now, so I, I, I figure I can probably breeze through these last episodes pretty quickly. Yeah. I can probably breeze through. The I mean, long- your daughter's not going to watch them, so. You no, know. she, she, she already said, like, no, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> She said, I said, there's a show called Rebels that she's a part of. And she says, when she shows up there, let me know. <laughs> so she's six. So she's, uh, she's very strong-willed. Uh, but we're, we're currently reading, every night I'm reading to her, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And mm-hmm. uh, the next book we're going to read is the Ahsoka book. Good. So, you know, we'll have fun with that. And uh, But yeah, my goal is now to, to get through Rebels... I'm not writing about. I'm writing about Clone Wars, so that kind of limits the amount I can watch in a week. Sure, I'm yeah. not writing about Rebels, mm-hmm. so I can fly through Rebels before Resistance starts. In the yeah, fall. and I mean Rebels is like the first season's eight episodes long. Yeah. Like that, you can knock that out in a weekend. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and I will. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I'm excited to to go on with that. Um, are do we know yet the exact date of resistance starting? Um I don't think so. I think they said they said fall. I think they said fall this year. Yeah. Um I don't think we have a solid date, but it will likely be announced soon-ish because fall is actually fast approaching in the next couple of months, which is a scary thought. I would think maybe at San Diego Comic-Con. Yeah, that could be it. Yes, actually, because... Uh, there's a 10th, 10 year of Clone there's Wars. There's a 10th anniversary Clone yeah. Wars uh, panel. So part of me is thinking, I just need to mainline the rest of Clone Wars in the next week. Yeah. To, to oh, catch the up to that panel. Next week? Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's like 10 days from when we're recording this. It'll be 7 days from when this was released. 2018 is going in fast. Yeah, it is. Um, but yeah... Uh, this is something obviously I'm not going to hold you to, but are you going to want to write about resistance or no? Um, probably. Okay. Um, my my work situation is changing uh, very shortly, so I'm going to have a little bit more free time on my hands. Okay. So uh, it's something I would like to do. Cool. But we'll uh, we'll have to see about that. It's it's there for you if you want it. Cool. Yeah. Uh. I guess the one other thing I did want to say about this season of Clone Wars is I understand that this was not the planned final full season of the show. Yeah. But because it is, that D-Squad arc really drove me nuts. Oh, God, is that the uh, the droids episodes? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, they're fine. They're okay. But when you realize, like, there are 20 episodes left and 10 of those don't matter. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you don't want to watch uh, droids just, you know, far The Gregor around. episode is really good. But the, what, is his name Gas, Gascon? Gascon. I, I, I made a joke that he was, like, Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. So, yeah. Yes. He's, 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 like, 
a bad accent away from being Jar Jar too. Yep. Like it was, the, the, like I, I could feel George Lucas kind of just being like, "Yeah, no, this is really funny. I promise you, kids are gonna love it." Yep. And kids probably did enjoy it, but going through it as an adult, you're just kind of like, "Please, God, get back to, like the the fact that I think it's doesn't it go straight from that into into the mall one, yeah, yeah, that is. The the show had some weird tonal whiplash between like stuff that's definitely for kids and like stuff that's definitely for like adult Star Wars fans watching right, it. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe yeah. next time we talk, I'll be close to done with Rebels. We'll see. I I certainly hope so because, like I said, like th- this was not the planned end of Ahsoka's arc. Um. And clearly, kind of, as you know, she shows up in Rebels. That that was a surprise for me, too. Going into Rebels, like, getting to the... I think it was near the end of Season 1 and her showing up out of the blue. That was a massive moment. And thinking, like, holy crap, these things are all connected. Especially, like, the, the prequel era kind of canon stuff and stuff leading into the original trilogy. And I think... By, I want to say, like, end of season two and season three, Rebels gets, in many ways, just as good as Clone Wars does in some of its best moments. So I'm really excited for you to to see that. Can't wait. Cool. Um, I think that might be us for the episodes. Yeah. Is there uh, any other kind of... uh, last thought she had on Clone Wars, because and I know I, I bitched and moaned at you to watch this goddamn TV show <laughs> I think for about four years. Sounds about right, yeah. Um, You know, I, I really enjoyed it. I'm really glad I watched it, but it makes me really upset that Lucas didn't incorporate some of these things into the films. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I was also I, talking today about how like almost none of the prequel titles have anything to do with the films. Like in Attack of the Clones, clones don't really attack. Yeah, in the Revenge of the Sith, the Sith don't really have revenge, right? Like it's just not really things. Yeah. Um, but how like, the does. Clone Wars are actually about like it really is. It's the stuff that I really wanted from the prequels. Yeah. And, and I think it comes good. down to the same thing I mentioned earlier, which is that, you know, George Lucas was at, at least an executive producer on every episode. Um, he, he like, people act, uh, attribute, like, bringing back Maul to being his idea. Like, he was in the writer's room for every meeting. He, he was hands-on um, uh, for this show. Even, like... Um, I have no idea whether it's true or not, but I've read from multiple sources that he was kicking up to like a million dollars per episode. You said that that's crazy. And the budget, yeah. Um, because like you you see like with the the Mandalore stuff, like that was fantastic, um, animation, um, especially for being what you know amounts to a kids show on Cartoon Network, right? Um. So he he was definitely hands on, and I think having a team around him helped him kind of uh, have these kind of outlandish ideas, but temper them into stories to be told. Right, because I think that's where he falls down. Is he has he's a great ideas man, but the the craft of the writing I think is where he falls down. Yeah, and having those people around him helped uh, certainly, and I, I think. Clone Wars to me is some of the best Star Wars ever. Like some of those moments really, really stand out, especially amongst because uh, I, I think it elevates the prequels. Yes, I, I agree with that. Um, so I have a friend, my friend Matt, lent me the Clone Wars DVDs of the uh, the O three stuff and the film before the film was on Netflix, mm-hmm. and he will say he prefers animated Star Wars to live action Star Wars. Which is a bold that's, claim. Yeah, that's a bold claim, but I can see where he's coming from yeah. now. And and he's a little bit younger than I am. He's he's probably like uh, three or four years younger than I am. 
And so the cool. prequels hit him when he was younger. And so sure. I, could, I could see this being a really good glue between the prequels and the original trilogy. Yeah, I think that's that's why it helped me as well. Because, yeah. like, I was six, I think, when Phantom Menace came out. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I had a job, Alice. I was 16 years old when that movie came out. <laughs> Almost 17. I was a week yeah, I was, uh... <laughs> yeah, I think I, I would have been going on seven. Oh, my goodness. I think. Something like that. All right. If that's not my cue to get out of here, I don't know what is. Yeah, I, th- I think that's where we're going to wrap up this episode. Um, so I, I don't quite know what our next episode topics is going to be from here, but uh, I know it's certainly going to be my goal to to read through Gardens of the Wills and through Inferno Squad. I actually just bought uh, Battlefront 2 today on a very cheap sale. I've actually already seen the story mode, but I'm going to be kind of playing through that. So oh, that'll be fun that might be something yeah. worth talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So uh, where can people find you on the internet, Brian? Uh, always at multiversitycomics.com and uh, always on Twitter at Brian Needs a Nap. And I am also on Twitter at Alice W. Castle and kind of just wherever people are talking about Star Wars. <laughs> yes, we will uh, very likely see you next month and may the force be with you. 